I want to welcome everybody. Thank you for joining us. I'm really excited to be doing this episode today of AM Live. I'm joined by my dad, Gabor Mate. He is a retired physician and is the author of the upcoming book, comes out in September, The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture. It's co-authored with my brother, Daniel Mate. Dad, how you doing? Thank you. I'm very well. Nice to be here with you. So, I only have uh, one or two questions, then I want to open it up to callers. So anybody who wants to call in, just join the queue. There's an option for people doing this for the first time. There's an option down below for you to click and then call in. And uh, Gabor will take as many questions as he can. Um, we're going to keep the questions today to Gabor's work and any other topics that you might have uh, relating to uh, politics or anything else that I cover, we can save that for a different day. So today we're going to get a chance for Gabor to engage with his audience. And my question to you, Dad, is about trauma. You know, it, you've taught the world so much about the role of trauma in our lives, whether it's how it fuels our brain development, uh, how it uh, can factor into addiction, how it can factor into our, vulner our vulnerability for serious disease. And, you know, looking at the trajectory of your work, I think the ideas that you put forth are much more mainstream now than they were when you first started being um, a public figure. And that's obviously a very positive development. There's such more of an awareness now of trauma and its role in shaping who we are than ever before. But with that has also, I think, come some uh, the risk, at least, of diluting the meaning of trauma and the overuse of it. So my question to you is, uh, how do you think we should think about trauma? How, what do you define it as? And is there any way in which you would offer a corrective to how you see it being discussed right now in the, in the mainstream discourse? Well, first of all, you're quite right. Uh, in the last 10, 15 years, there's been a tremendous um, uh, broadening of, of public awareness of trauma, <clears throat> as witnessed by the response to my own work and to the work of other figures like Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, a psychiatrist whose book, The Body Keeps the Score, uh, has sold over 2 million copies and has been on the New York Times bestsellers list for years now. Um, Bruce Perry, who is another psychiatrist and neuroscientist and trauma researcher, his book, um, What Happened to You with, with Oprah, that came out last summer, again, a big bestseller. So the subject of trauma is much more generally discussed in our society. And I'll say it's not discussed enough because the average physician still doesn't hear a single lecture about it, even though it's a major dynamic behind all kinds of physical and mental diseases. The average lawyer never hears a word about it. The average judge never hears a word about it, even though most people in jails, particularly for criminal for criminal offenses involving drugs or violence are there because of trauma and are further traumatized by the legal system. The average teacher never hears about it, even though the majority of the kids who have behavior problems and learning difficulties are facing these challenges because of trauma in their lives. So on the one hand, there's more conversation, but not nearly enough. But on the other, there's also, as you suggested, an overuse of the word, and that people talk about it a bit too easily. Like, I went to a movie and I was so traumatized, or, or some, somebody called me a name on Facebook and I was so traumatized. No, you weren't. 
Here's what trauma is. Trauma is not what happens to you. Trauma is what happens inside you. And the meaning of the word trauma comes from a Greek word for wound, a psychological wound that leaves you in pain, constricted, less capable of being in the world. The fact that you're upset or stressed or you experienced emotional pain, that doesn't mean you were traumatized. Now, I'm not saying that it didn't hurt, that that was pleasant. No, but seeing a movie and feeling upset about it is not the same as being traumatized. So, on the other hand, if the experience leaves you more constricted, more disconnected from yourself, less capable of being in the present moment, um, acting out your life out of pain rather than from your true self, then you're being traumatized. That usually happens in childhood. And since your orientation, Aaron, is very much, and I'm so proud of the work that you've done, is in the realm of politics, trauma shows up in politics without people even realizing it. Because, for example, when a child is badly traumatized, their view of the world becomes that the world is a dangerous place where everybody's against you, where um, even your friends can't be trusted, even your friends want your house and your wife, and these are your friends, so you have to be aggressive and a bully and uh, and, 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 and selfish and, uh, and, and always alert. In other words, you become president of the United States, because I just described Donald Trump. And... I, I'm not making this up. These words that the world is a hostile place, doggy dog, people, even your friends want your wife and your house. He said that. <laughs> now, he said that because he was a very traumatized child. He grew up with a, a sociopathic father who demeaned him and attacked him. And I could show you same dynamics across the spectrum in the political world. So trauma not only has an impact on our social lives, it also is, or, or I should say our personal lives, it also has an impact on our political uh, functioning. You have a line in the first chapter of your upcoming book, and I'm not going to preview too much of it, but you quote the person you mentioned before, Bessel van der Kolk, and he says, trauma is when we are not seen and known. What does that mean? Well, so I said that trauma was a wound. <clears throat> and th th that hasn't healed. So there's two ways you can wound children. One is by doing bad things to them, like physical, sexual, or emotional abuse. And that happens to millions of kids. You can traumatize them through racism, through misogyny. You can hurt people that way. You can hurt kids when there is the death of a parent or the parent being jailed or a rancor's divorce or violence in the family. But you can also hurt kids by not meeting their needs. So if you need for food or water and I don't provide that for you, I'm hurting you, even though I haven't hit you. Now, children have needs that go beyond the physical being seen for who they are, accepted for who they are, having their emotions heard, understood, and accepted, that's a developmental need of the child. In this society, very few children have those needs met. 
And that's what Bessel meant. All right. So let's go to the first caller. Vincent, you're up first. And in the bottom right of your screen, you'll see a little microphone icon. And when you come in, you want to unmute that so we can hear you. Okay. We lost Vincent. Um, and Kusha, I see you, but since you've been in here before and, uh, we've, we've interacted a lot, I want to give other people a chance to speak who have not spoken before and who have questions for Gabor, but I, I will keep your place in line, but I want to give other people a chance to, to go up first. Okay. Hope you don't, hope you'll forgive me. So Jackie, you're up next. And when you come in, just unmute your microphone in the um, bottom right. Hello. Hi. Hi. Hi, Gabor and Aaron. So good to be with you here this afternoon. Um, I am a birth worker. I am an aspiring doula and um, currently a birth or I'm an aspiring midwife, currently a birth doula. And I wanted to ask you, um, how how do you go about, I guess, getting to that place deep down with the person? I, I talk about how important the birthing experience in itself is and how do you how can you explain to someone how big a birth can be and how traumatic it can be for the mother and for the newborn um even with them not having a memory of their own birth okay jackie thank you for the question uh first of all <clears throat> you couldn't have known this but in this book the myth of normal i have a chapter on what happens to infants in the womb mm -hmm. prenatally because already the emotional experience of the mother is a physiological impact on the child's development and a psychological impact. Number one, I have a chapter on birth. And um, I used to deliver a lot of babies as a family doctor, about a thousand over the 20-year period. Mm -hmm. And um, I learned a lot from midwives. Uh, I was, and I'm not going to go into the details, but... I learned from midwives that the way we do birth in this society is actually harmful for many kids mm -hmm. because we medicalize birth. We take a natural process and make a pathological process out of it. We interfere way too much. We introduce instruments when not necessary, loud noises, lights, shouting. The child needs to be born in a quiet, peaceful place with a mother who is supported to be as relaxed as she can be and as safe as she can be. The cesarean section rate, and cesarean sections can be very important in saving mothers' lives or children's lives and health. But ideally, about 10 to 15% of births should end in cesarean section. That rate is up to almost 40% in many parts, even more than that. In other words, now the birth process is not just a question of getting the kid to move from the uterus out into the world. It's actually part of life that prepares you for life. So during a, a, a healthy birth process, hormones are released in the mother and in the baby that prepare them for bonding, that they create that relationship between them. Endorphins and oxytocin and other essential hormones. It's called a love cocktail. When we make women scared and uptight and where we interfere, 
uh, we're actually interfering with the natural hormonal release that needs to happen during birth. So again, I'm not speaking against medical intervention when it's necessary, but here in the Western world, it's become much more than necessary. It's become a almost programmed intrusion. Now, your question was, how do we take somebody back to that place once they're adult? Is that what your question is? I guess, yes. My question is, one, how, what is a way to get people to really see or understand that this experience stays with not only the mother, but with the child, the way that they're born can, can really affect them. I, I believe just from what I've seen and experienced, your birth can really affect you for the rest of your life. Is that an opinion that you share? Yeah, it, it can. Now, um, not just in isolation, you know, um, it also depends on what happens after birth. But but uh, very much matters what happens after birth, um, because even after a very difficult birth, if the conditions are right, then um, the system can reorganize itself in a healthy way. But very often that doesn't happen in our society mm-hmm. for all kinds of reasons. For example, children don't spend nearly as much time with their parents as nature intended them to. So... Um, well, you're totally right. People can't recall their birth experiences consciously, but the emotional and physiological memories does stay with them. You're quite right about that. There's a whole number of ways of accessing that. People do rebirthing uh, practices. I'm sure you're familiar with that. Mm-hmm. Um, people can do psychedelic experiences that can often take them back to the birth experience. Um, in my own work, um, if I work enough with people with, with people's body experiences, very often they're carrying in their body the imprints of their birth experience. Mm-hmm. So this is not a therapeutic session, so I, I can only tell you, yes, I agree with you. That's an essential life experience. It's not just a question of being pulled or pushed into the world. It's a question of how that process unfolds. That can have long-term implications. There are ways of working with it, um, despite the fact that it's not accessible to conscious memory. Beautiful. Thank you. Thanks, Jackie. Reed, you are next. And when you come in, just a reminder to unmute yourself with uh, by hitting the mic in the bottom right of your screen. Hey, thank you so much. I wasn't expecting to go so quickly. Um, I, I guess I have a question. I'm 51 years old and I was suffered a lot of trauma as a child. Um, my father abused me. My mother gaslit me into thinking that it wasn't real. Um, and I'm wondering sort of how, as I sort of tell the story of what happened to me as a kid and sort of, sort of calling in like the reality of my life, I find a lot of people don't believe that it took me until my father died when I was 47 for mm-hmm. me to really feel free around that. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'm not asking you for confirmation around that. And if I'm wrong about it, then I'm okay to accept that too. But 
how is it that we can, as older people, and I've lived a very full life and I, you know, survived and, you know, did everything I could, but I have noticed since he died, the last four years of my life have been so significantly different. I have been freed on I, the agency I have is just substantially, you know, different from anything before. Um, how to kind of communicate that to other people that that does happen. And there is hope for those of us who are older to get past that and move forward. Well, first of all, I, I totally understand uh, your experience. And um, the reason for your experience was, this is not a criticism in any way, just stating a fact, that emotionally, psychologically, you hadn't liberated yourself from the impact of your parents. Um, yeah. when they, When the parent dies, all of a sudden you're free because you're no longer a small child being oppressed. So in a certain sense, until the age 47, you lived your life like still a helpless and oppressed child. Um, not in every way, but in some significant ways. And that's very common. Now, the good news is nobody has to wait for their parent to die, but um, to liberate themselves. Because ultimately that quality of freedom doesn't depend on the parent. It's in you. But it takes work, it takes therapy, and it takes uh, dedication to get there. Yeah, and I don't, so, I don't, no, want, no, anyone, in terms of I don't want anyone to have to wait. And also the other thing that I did for 20 years is I took some psychotropic medications, of, okay. you know, I, and then I got off of them just before my father died. And the combo of the two and a couple of ketamine therapies really yeah. freed me. Well, they, and those, that combo is really good, and I, I guess I'm, I'm trying to find that way to have some confirmation, affirmation to tell other people you don't have to do what I did. You could, you could start. Yeah, well, look, so, so here's the thing for you. Um, first of all, great. Sounds like you did great work, and uh, to, to liberate yourself. Um, but here's my question to you. And there's nothing um, inexplicable or weird or in any way strange about your experience. In fact, it's perfectly normal experience, what you're describing. But my question to you is, why is it important to you that other people should understand it? What if they're limited? What if their own experience doesn't allow them? What if they haven't liberated themselves yet? Why is it so important to you that they get it? Because it's just how I am. I just, mm. I don't know. I, well, no, I want you, uh, I'm, you may not wish to answer me right now, but I would post, but I put that question to you, is what do you need from them? Right, no, that is a good question. What are you I, looking I, I, I hear you, yes. Why, why are you not okay? If the rest of the world is blind, let's say that there's 7 billion people in the world who are blind and one person who isn't, mm -hmm. You can still see, right? Yeah. No, you're so, right. so, in a certain sense, you know when Aaron quoted Bessel van der Kolk when he said that traumas were you not seen and heard? Well, mm -hmm. you, you were not seen and heard in childhood, were you? No. You're still looking for the world to see and hear you. But I got news for you. A, you don't need them anymore to do that because you're not that child. And yeah. number two, you can connect with people who are capable of seeing. You know, Hard to find these days, but yes, you're right. <laughs> and yes, I agree. You're right. And uh, that is that is hugely helpful. Thank you. Okay. Really well, thank you. Thank you.
So next up, and thank you, Reed. Next up, Vincent, you are back in the queue. And when you come in, just remember to unmute yourself by hitting the microphone icon in the bo- icon in the bottom right. Hello, can you hear me? Yes. Yes, thank you. So uh, I just want to start out by saying, Aaron, uh, it's an honor to get to speak to you. I've been a fan of your work at the Gray Zone for a long time. But I am a, this is obviously a question for your esteemed physician father. Um, I am a psychiatric nurse practitioner. I've been working as a nurse practitioner for about uh, almost eight years now. Mm-hmm. I have treated numerous uh, people with various forms of trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I find that unfortunately a lot of these people have been prescribed um, through the course of the years uh, high doses of benzodiazepines. Yeah. Um, they've also been prescribed high doses of alpha one and alpha two agonists, yeah. such as dosin, clonidine, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. You know, I don't know that that always. I, I think that that may treat may seem. I, I find that a lot of these. Uh, medications ultimately serve as a band-aid um, and not necessarily uh, helping the core problem. Um, I, I just was kind of wanted to get your thoughts on the um, on the what we currently have in the pharmaco- you know pharmacopoeia of medications on the market or available in general, and if you think there's anything that's helpful. And if you can answer, if you have a second question, how do you define uh, actual recovery from trauma? Okay. Well, first, thanks for the question. Um, So as a physician, I've prescribed these medications. And as a patient, I've taken them. And um, they can be helpful. But they're not the answer. Because they only treat symptoms. Now, treating symptoms in itself is not a bad thing. But if that's all you do, you're not helping anybody heal. You're just containing the symptoms, putting on a Band-Aid, as you said. So, because in my view, and perhaps in your experience as well, virtually all the mental health issues that people come to us with are rooted in trauma. And their responses to trauma. And so until we deal with the trauma, we're only dealing with symptoms. Unfortunately, in these days, most physicians are only, are only taught this biological view that it's just we have to just change the biology of the brain by these medications. They're not taught about trauma, as I said earlier. And most psychiatrists are not taught about it either. So that a lot of people are medicated without the sources of their issues ever being addressed. And so while at times I found medications helpful for myself, um, the whole, the, if I was to give somebody, and I'm not practicing anymore, but if I found myself giving medication to somebody, and I'd be, be by the way, we prescribe them way too often and way for too long and way too quickly. But if I were to find myself, okay, somebody needs the support of the medication, I would want to make sure, okay, let's settle your mood down, let's settle down your mind state with this medication, and then let's go to work on the real issues that are underlying your mental health challenge. Now, here's the problem. The pharmaceutical companies have no incentive whatsoever to research that because they make their money by selling pills. And the physician is in a position where 
if you come to me with depression, for example, just take a very quick example, what is depression? Well, look at the word itself. What does it mean to depress? It means to push down. Yeah. What gets pushed down in depression? Your emotions. Why would you push down your emotions? Because when you were small, you were not seen and heard, and it was too painful for you to experience those emotions. So now you come to me. If I was going to talk to you about how you push down your emotions and why, and how to stop doing that, I'd have to spend time with you. But if I just want to deal with the symptoms, I can give you a prescription in two minutes. Mm -hmm. So that's the dilemma that we're facing in our healthcare system. Uh, first of all, there's the profit motive, there's the convenience of the physician, but but beyond anything else, there's the ignorance about trauma and its impacts. Bill, thank you very much. I appreciate your help. And I imagine sometimes it's frustrating for you to watch this happen. It's it's absolutely heartbreaking because yeah. You know, my, I didn't go into this job to make, you know, I don't see, I want my patients to get better. That's, yeah. like, that, that's the goal. And when you, it's heartbreaking when you see them become dependent on, you know, you see, you know, and that, that's what I, I, I think I find the most frustrating is it's like, you know, you, you don't want to create another problem for somebody who already is struggling, who's already had exactly. to deal with enough in this life. Exactly. I totally get the frustration. Believe me, I shared it all the years I was in practice. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Vincent. Thank you. Sarah, you're next. And when you come in, just remember to unmute yourself by hitting the microphone in the bottom right. So, Sarah, if you can hear this, just you want to hit the microphone. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Um, First, thank you, Aaron, for, for doing this. And I'm so excited to be here. Gabor, I love you and I love your work. You help me so much. And my question is um, how to do the healing work when you live in a home uh, that you're like you continuously getting abused or you have a relationship with your with your with your parents and each time you talk or you meet them. Uh, you still getting emotionally abused, uh, especially when you belong to a culture and to a religion that glorify parents. Well, I don't mean to put you on a spot, but are you talking about yourself? Uh, yes. Can I ask how old you are? I'm uh, 33. And you and you and you're saying that this is your situation. Well, it's um, it's messy. now I don't live with them, but mm -hmm. we call and we have to keep relationship. But I also have sisters that that live with them. I see. Well, <clears throat> you might have a decision to make. If you he once you're totally healed, you know. By the way. Your parents can be any old way and it won't affect you. <laughs> you know? Uh, it won't. Because you're you and it doesn't matter what they're doing. But if it's still very delicate and very raw and very vulnerable, and if every time you interact with them you get hurt, you can do what sometimes my children have done with me and say, 
Dad, I'm not willing to be in relationship with you right now. I'm not willing to talk to you right now. I need some space. And that's my best advice, is that if you're doing healing work, but every time you interact with your family, um, that undermines your healing work, and they're not willing to look at themselves in any way at all, then you have a decision to make. What's more important to me, my own healing or the relationship? If I can have both, that's great. But if I can't, then I have a decision to make. And that's a decision that no child can make, because no child can do without the relationship. But as an adult, you've got a lot more freedom. As to your sisters, if they're living in that situation when this is still happening to them, it can still be helpful, you know, just to talk to somebody, just to talk to somebody outside the house. And what I'm getting at here is <clears throat> the great psychotherapist and author, Alice Miller, who wrote this wonderful book called The Drama of the Gifted Child. Um, and she was asked once, why is it that some kids who are living in an abusive home, they still end up being okay and others don't. And she said, the difference is the presence of what she called an empathetic witness. So even if you need to go back to that family situation, either you or your sisters, but if you have somebody else on the outside that you can talk to about it, who can validate your feelings and help you get in touch with yourself, that can make it endurable. So the three choices are be in a relationship and not do anything, just put up with it. Number two, not be in a relationship if it's too undermining and too hurtful. And number three, be in a relationship, but don't rely on it to meet your needs. Go somewhere else to get your needs met and to be listened to and to be supported. Yeah. Where does that leave you, that answer? Uh, well, I didn't. I have done a lot of work. The uh, first, uh, having my own people, uh, uh, yes. self compassion, learning how to regulate my own emotion, and I and I and I and I really like get really in in a good way, in a good uh, kind of spot. Whenever I talk with my mother, special especially, I'm fine. But still, sometimes like when I'm some comments make me so vulnerable. So it's it's like I think I'm I think I'm better than my sisters to be honest <laughs> because I I've been doing a lot of psychotherapy and reading and I'm going into counseling uh, school of counseling myself. But but it's still sometimes and it, it hurts it hurts me I, and oh, I, get it. I totally get it. Listen, I'm I'm wondering about Aaron something about Aaron. Can I ask you something? Please, yeah, go ahead. So Aaron's visiting Vancouver. We live in Vancouver, British Columbia. Aaron lives in New York. He's been, we've been so happy to have him here for almost four weeks now because we haven't seen him for a long time. Um, but the other day, Aaron, you heard me and your mom fighting, right? Yes. Uh, you were down in the basement. We were up on the top floor. What was your experience? Are you willing to share that? Yeah, sure. So I was in the kitchen and you guys were upstairs. And yeah. so... I, the way I heard you fight was 
the, even it wasn't just the fighting, but the way the the sound was projected through walls and down the stairs. It immediately, I it, it I heard it, and I immediately just felt a jolt of fear, and yeah. uh, complete fear. I was paralyzed for a second with fear, and um, wow. it reminded me of exactly how I. It, it was the exact same way I used to hear you guys fight when I was a kid, the same yes. from the same location, you know. And so that the way that sound was projected to me and entered me, it just immediately triggered fear, and I I I, I just I marveled at that because what I'm actually hearing is just a sound. And I'm hearing it now as a grown adult, but yet it immediately triggered this, this, this infantile or, or child like fear. So I yep. was, I, I told you about right. that. And I was, I was curious what, what is going on in, in the brain when that happens? Yeah. Is that the fear center, the amygdala is being triggered uh, because of childhood imprints. Mm-hmm. So, um, thanks for that, Aaron. Uh, Sarah, does that resonate with you? Yes, it does, uh, and um, I think the third option you you provided is, is what I'm working on, yeah. and uh, and I hope that I can uh, get to a point that when, like no matter what abusive comment I hear, uh, it doesn't as affect me much. It can be unpleasant, but but some of the comments really take days of my life when I'm uh, hyper, yeah. very hyper. Thank you so much, and I uh, and I love you. And by the way, I have the same birthday as you, January sixth. <laughs> oh well, thank you, and happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> you too. Thank you. Bye. Yeah. Thank you, Sarah. Jillian, you are up, followed by Kusha. And Jillian, when you come in now, just remember to unmute yourself by clicking the microphone icon in the bottom right. So Jillian, if you can hear this, there's a microphone icon in the bottom right. Oh. You just got to click. There you go. Good. You okay. Sorry. <laughs> no worries. Um, so uh, I was learning a lot from actually just hearing Sarah and yourself speak. But um, I guess what I was going to ask was um, I would say that I'm in a relationship that's um, been abusive and I'll just clarify that like I'm not in danger or anything but I did have to um uh call the police like around Christmas time on my on my partner who was getting physical um and I guess it's just a confusing time and I'm so curious uh Gabor like what do we do when people you know have trauma and then also hurt others I um you know, this person is an ex-Marine who, you know, left uh, the Marine Corps. He was diagnosed like OCD and panic disorder and left. Um, uh, we also have a young son, too. So when I was hearing you talk to Jackie, and I'll say maybe just for context that I'm a midwife myself, um, and ta- you talking to Jackie about your upcoming book, how there's a section on prenatal um, you know, the impacts on the, on the unborn or on the fetus, um, you know, that just kind of made my heart drop thinking about some of the experiences I had, uh, last year as a pregnant person and my, my son inside me, like being alongside for those things. So 
And just thinking about all of that, like how much space do we give someone who, you know, engages in abuse to heal when you also are, (laughs) you know, concerned about infant development and brain development. And I feel like, you know, as someone who's a midwife, and I also used to work at the Portland Hotel Society, like I'm just such, Mm. you know, I really want to help people heal. But I also know that that potentially puts me in a situation where I'm, you know, maybe being vulnerable myself. And um, I'm just getting a lot of, you know, I'm, I'm working with like victim services and all these people. And they're just kind of like, you know, you just leave that person and move on before they can do any more damage to you. And and something about that doesn't really sit right. Cause I just don't know if we, Okay, Julian, shut, Julian, people. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry, that's okay. I, I interrupt you only because I think I really get your question, okay? Okay. So is it okay if I plunge into answering? Please, yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, <clears throat> I'm going to be as direct and honest with you as I possibly can be. Is that okay? Beautiful. Thank you. One of my children... When they were nine years old, they said to me, Dad, I wish your mom would get a divorce. And I said, why? And they said, I don't know, but I think my life would be better. They were 100% right. Because my kids for a long time lived in a war zone, as Aaron just alluded to. That wasn't good for them. Had my wife had the strength, um, had she not been traumatized herself in childhood, she would have said to me, I'm not willing to put up with your behavior. I'm going to parent my children. And when I have to defend myself, there's no physical violence, but I have to defend myself against your emotional violence and, and, and defend my kids against all this stress. My energy is taken away from parenting my kids. Mm-hmm. Now, the way you framed it, when you originally asked your question, was about how do you help somebody and you started talking about your spouse and your partner. You have to decide who do you want to parent, the little baby or the big baby? (laughs) Because you can't do both at the same time. Any energy you put into parenting the big baby is taken away from the little baby. Mm -hmm. It's that simple. Okay? Now, there's a reason why you're with this particular man and that has to do with your own childhood trauma. And so you need to look at that. If you hadn't had that trauma, you would not have been with this person in the first place. I say this with all full of compassion for him. I get that you love him and that you have compassion for him. Mm-hmm. And you care about him. But you're not responsible for him or for his growth. That's up to him at this point. And when you start to parenting him, as women do in this society, you got two risks. Why do you think women have doubled the risk of taking antidepressant medication than men do? Because they're absorbing the men's depression themselves. Mm-hmm. Why do you think women have more autoimmune disease? Because they take on all the stress of their men. That's why 80% of people with autoimmune disease are women. And I'm not even speaking about your child. Right. So that's as clear as I can be. Right now, you're trying to parent two people, a big one and a little one. Mm-hmm. Not even, and, I'm not, and I'm not even mentioning you need to parent yourself. 
which you do. You can't do it all. When you give to the one, you take away from the other. You have a decision to make. Okay. This is the best I can tell you. And I'm saying with full compassion for your partner. And I hope he gets the help that he needs. And And maybe if he does... At some point, uh, it would be a different situation. But uh, your child, I'm telling you, and I can put, I'm sorry for being directive, I don't mean to be, but I need to be direct. This child is at risk. Mm -hmm. And you're not doing that deliberately to the child, but that's the situation. Now, Julian, I hope that answer was okay with you. Yes, it was. Thank you. All right. You're welcome. Thank you. Pedro, you're up. Yeah, there you go. <clears throat> oh, hello. Uh, good evening, Dr. Mighty. Uh, can you hear me well? Yes, yes. you can. Uh, okay. Uh, so uh, I, I was not very familiar with your work. So uh, yesterday I went to took a look at your new book, The Myth of Normal. And uh, from from what I understand, it's ag- against uh, pre- prescription drug use drug usage, uh, which I which I think is a really bad idea. Just uh, look at. Uh, Sorry, you think my book is a prescription for drug use? Is that what you said? No, I, I said it's against prescription drug use usage. Oh, oh, oh. oh. Um... No, it's not. As I as I've just said, I've taken them myself, and sometimes they've helped me. So it's not against it, but in the book I do talk about how they're overused and they're used to suppress symptoms rather than just to help people under, you know understand themselves. So I think there's a place for prescription drugs, uh, but I think we rely on them way too much, and we do rely on them in a way that's harmful to a lot of people. That's what I believe. Uh, okay, thanks for for clarifying that. Uh, yeah, my my opinion is from my understand that uh, at the opio crisis in the United States, uh, 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 I, I would think is uh, when doctors prescribe uh, drugs that are like similar to heroin. It just I agree. You know, I agree that way too many opioids are prescribed, and I also agree that the pharmaceutical companies are deliberately. Um, denied the addictive potential of their drugs when they were selling these drugs to doctors. I think it's been a terrible, terrible thing. I agree with you. Yes, yes, thank you. So uh, I, I was also reading a bit further, and you talk a bit, uh, I'm reading your Twitter page, actually. You talk about biopsychological approach. So I, I was wondering if you could <clears throat> elaborate a bit on this. And also, if I may, I have a, a, another question or two, uh, which is about what are your thoughts on uh, legalizing drugs or decriminalizing drugs, uh, because there is a difference between the two. So what would be the pros and cons from uh, from a society point of view? Okay, well, look, so if you're interested in my views on addiction and drug use, I've written a book on the subject. It's called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, and I talk about this in great detail. Um, I worked for a dozen years in North America's most heavy area of drug use, which is Vancouver's downtown east side. Um, 
I think that uh, drugs shouldn't should not be legalized in the sense of being sold in corner stores, but they should be decriminalized as they have been in Portugal. And um, people use drugs not because they're bad people, but because they're in pain, emotional, physical pain. And as a result, they have this need to escape from pain. So they use alcohol or they use cigarettes or they use heroin, they use cocaine, they use sex, they use gambling, they use pornography. There's all kinds of addictions. So it's very arbitrary to make some addictions legal and others addictions illegal. I'm not suggesting, again, that these drugs be sold uh, freely, but I'm suggesting that instead of criminalizing them, we need to see that drug use is a response to trauma. We need to treat the trauma. And in Portugal, what they do is if somebody is fond with a quantity of drugs for their personal use, not as drug dealers to sell them to others, but for their personal use, there's no, re there's no charge against them. They're not jailed. They're not criminal. Um, they are directed to treatment. And uh, Portugal has done this very successfully for quite a few years now. Wherever this has been, it's being tried in Oregon now. So there's a big difference between legalization and decriminalization. I believe that these drugs should be decriminalized. Um, and a lot more attention be paid to healing the trauma that underlies the drug use and uh, instead of just the behavior of drug use. So that's, that's my response there. Your biopsychosocial question, I will not answer now because it's too big a question and I want to make space for others as well. But, yeah. but, but again, um, there's lots of my YouTube lectures and my books where I talk about these things in here. You can check them out. And then on the YouTube, you don't have to pay any money to watch my lecture. Okay. And thank you, Pedro. And so we only have a limited time left with Gabor, so I want to get to the next yeah. caller. Uh, and uh, that uh, is... uh, uh, can I just say one more thing? Uh, I, just, I just want to say I totally agree with you. Uh, decriminalize but not legalize because the reasons you said. And also I'm very familiar with the situation in Portugal because I'm Portuguese. Oh, there you go. And uh, I, and I witnessed in the in the nineties there was a particular neighborhood that looked like a, a scene from a movie. People were completely. I mean, it's impossible to describe how to see how the people were. Uh, well, anyway, yeah. thank you. Thank you, Pedro. Thanks a lot. So next caller is Mark A. And uh, when you come in, just remember to unmute yourself by pressing the microphone in the bottom right corner. So if you can hear me, there's a microphone button in the bottom right. You just want to tap it to unmute yourself. Okay, last call from Mart A to unmute yourself. And if not, we'll take the next caller. Okay, Aaron, you are up next. And you have to unmute yourself by pressing the microphone button in the bottom right. Oh, hey, Gabor and Aaron. Thank you for doing this. Um, Gabor, I have kind of just a broad 
question for you. Um, as you know, as I'm sure you know, we, we're kind of living in this time of increasing culture war and yeah. polarization and people are at each other's throats and your son and his compatriots are, you know, they're doing their, everyone's doing their thing. And, um, I, I mean, I totally, I'm kind of on, you know, everyone has their corner. I'm on their side, but everyone's got their, they're either a culture warrior for wokeness or anti-wokeness or American empire or anti-imperialism. And I kind of just wonder what you think about, um, kind of what this is doing to people to kind of day in and day out be in this fight. Um, I mean, on the one hand, I find people really brave that do this and courageous. Um, on the other hand, I kind of wonder, like, how are they uh, coping with it? And, you know, just because it's so immediate and it's so constant, like, how are they living, you know, continuing to do this day in and day out? Kind of what's what that's doing to people who are engaged in these fights. I mean, so I kind of wanted to get your view. People have concerns yeah, or passion debate. about it. There, you know, everyone yeah. wants to debate. Yeah. Everyone wants to fight. Everyone wants to constantly have it out with each other. And I, I kind of look on it with, you know, I just can't, I mean, I feel, you know, stressed by watching it happen constantly all over the internet, all over the culture sphere. Okay. Well, so, so you just made an interesting statement. You feel, you said you feel stressed, right? Aaron, stay with me. Can you stay muted? Can you stay unmuted? Yeah, sure. Okay, great. Thank you. What stresses you? I mean, like I said, I think people are, I feel like people are taking stands against each other constantly. And I find it, you know, just everyone's, everyone's taking a constant stand against others. But I, at the same time, don't see how they're engaged with this war with the other constantly on a day to day basis. Okay. But you said you were stressed by that, right? No, I'm just saying watching it, people in the public sphere kind of fighting it out with each other. All the time. Yeah. I got that. You said that stressed you, right? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I, but I'm kind of wondering, like, okay. the stress. Okay. On- okay. okay, so look, I got, I got it. Thank you. I just wanted to understand what you're saying. Okay. So I have two answers here. Okay. First of all, um, every society, and particularly this one, has got its contradictions and it's got its divisions. That's not a new thing. Um, there's always been the rich, there's always been the poor. There's always been racial division and racial hatred. Uh, There's always been what's been called the gender wars, you know, the mm, conflict between women's aspirations and the status quo. So these have always been with us. In the last 40 years, under globalized corporate capitalism, these divisions have been tremendously exacerbated. The economic inequality has not gone back to what it used to be in the 1920s, 100 years ago, even worse. Um, the um, Despite the civil rights movement and the election of a black president, racism has not abated. And I can also speak in my own country, Canada, which is uh, the same situation. But when the economic resources are inequally distributed and people are anxious and people are stressed, 
then these divisions that already exist become much more marked and much more polarized. And then you add to that a threat to all of us, like the COVID uh, pandemic, then you have more added stress. And the more stress there is, the more the fault lines that exist in a society. It's the same with a marriage, you know, as long as, let's say they have problems that they haven't worked out, the couple, but then there's economic pressure or some kind of stress like illness, then all of a sudden those divisions that were papered over and covered over before become much more apparent. So I think that's what we're ha what's happening now. And I think you're quite right. I think it's very, very stressful for a lot of people. So that's, that's an objective assessment of reality that you made that I'm speaking to. Number one. Number two, in terms of your personal stress, you may or may not wish to think about it. And I'm only making a suggestion. But do you remember what Aaron said about his parents last week fighting upstairs and he's in the kitchen and he's experiencing fear? Remember that? Well, oh, we lost Darren. I, we actually lost Darren. So hopefully, okay. he can still hear. Yeah. Well, Go what ahead. I would what I would say to Anne then is, is it possible that this conflict that you're seeing on the outside in the political sphere reminds you of anything about your own life when you were small? And does that possible that memory possibly contribute to your stress? Hmm. So, so those are my answers. Yeah. And what I would say to people is that. Sometimes it's just Twitter. It's just social media and it's just words. Yeah. And uh, words only have the power that we give them. Exactly. Um, okay. We're going to take, we have limited time. So I want to prioritize caller wise people who have not been here before and who have come here uh, to speak to Gabor. So Hayat, I'm going to go to you. When you come in, remember to unmute yourself by hitting the microphone button in the bottom right. Hayat, if you can hear me, you want to hit the microphone button in the bottom right. Okay, can you hear me now? Yeah. So thank you very much for having me. Thank you for coming in. Okay, so um, basically I wanted to ask is I grew up in a very religious um, household, Muslim mm -hmm. uh, family that migrated from the Middle East. Um, and so I grew up with um, a mother and father who constantly battled each other. My dad particularly was pretty harsh on my mom. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had to sit in on as a child and listen to them uh, fight. And so I'd get up in the middle of the night at four or five, like age four or five. I remember trying to push my dad off my mom and wow. then he would accuse me. He would tell me that everybody thought I was crazy and that their fighting is due to me. So I've held that for so long and uh, I am in therapy for, I've been in therapy for a very long time. I have my own daughter, she's 22. Um, she's a medical student. <laughs> and uh, I found like I've had to um, really work with my own, um, my own life as she grew up because yes. I've always had that thing in my in my body was like, Oh my God, am I not well? Am I not like, you know, like I've always had this idea um, in therapy. I'm like, okay, well maybe I'm crazy. Maybe something's wrong with me. 
maybe I'm broken, you know? Mm. So it's been a very, I was watching your wisdom of trauma mm-hmm. and it really resonated with me. I was like, oh my God, I got to learn more. <laughs> mm. Got to learn more from this person. And um, so I'm just wondering is, is like healing is a forever journey, like you had said. Um, it's just maybe I, I, I'd like to have, you know, some sort of closure, you know? All right. <laughs> like, I'm okay. <laughs> not, not reassuring. No, first, okay. first, so first of all, um, that's why the next book is called The Myth of Normal. Mm-hmm. Because in this society, what passes as normal is actually crazy. Mm-hmm. And a lot of kids are being hurt just the way you were. And then they're diagnosed as if there's something wrong with them. But actually their response is a normal response to an abnormal situation. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing wrong with you. And you're not broken. But but given the, the childhood that you had and the impossible task you were given to protect your mother against your father, no wonder you would experience a lot of distress. And, 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 and then to be told that you're crazy, Mm-hmm. further undermines in fact your reaction was very natural you were put in a situation that you never should have been put into no child should be but there's nothing wrong with you okay? yeah and a lot of people are told that there's something wrong with them and there isn't what was wrong is the situation that they're reacting to mm-hmm. that that's what was abnormal now in terms of closure um First of all, I'm sure that you also you've done a lot of work already, and I'm sure that that insecure and that person who believes there's something wrong with you, that's not you anymore, is it? I mean, you know, you don't totally buy into that anymore, do you? No, I don't. I've been working really hard on my um, for the last two years in therapy, and I've come a long way. Well, there Um, you go. So that so. The very fact that you've come a long way proves that you're not, nobody's ever broken, you know. Uh, They may get disconnected from themselves. They may have a lot of pain, but it doesn't mean that they're actually broken. And you're proving it. You're proving it by the work that you're doing. Now, um, in terms of my work, uh, there's lots of my lectures on YouTube. There are my books. There's this new one coming out in September. Um, And I also teach a course called, um, since you asked, called Compassionate Inquiry, which I teach to therapists and others, and they've been studied by about over 2,000 people in 80 countries. But there's also a version for the lay public. So you could actually get the Compassionate Inquiry short course, but you can Google it, and it's not that expensive, and you can just do it on your own. And it's videos of me talking with people and then one of my co-workers explaining what it's all about and people find it very transformative so you may wish to check that out i'm not trying to sell you something i'm just saying that's a resource that's available for you other than that um, i do online events sometimes for example this march i think march 3rd to the 6th i'm doing an online event Um, we can accept a thousand participants you could sign up for that if you wanted to Um, but anyway, what I'm going to say to you 
is what I'm really hearing is that you're already doing the work and that you're already moving along really well. So if you want to check out my work further, sure is there for you, but you're already doing it even without me. That's what I'm going to tell you. Okay. Thank you very much. I'm definitely going to look it up. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Hayat. Uh, so bringing in people who have never spoken here before, Jackie, I'll try to get back to you, but since you already spoke before, we're going to jump others ahead. So Carrie, you are up next. And remember when you come in to hit the microphone icon in the bottom right to unmute yourself. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, yes thank you. Okay. Hello. Um, I, um, I have a question about how, do you have any suggestions? And I guess this is kind of a broad question, but when entering into relationships with people and you know that you suffered from trauma, like mm-hmm. I know that I've suffered from trauma yeah. and yet, you know, there's the sort of initial, whether it's in the workplace or a romantic relationship or even a friendship that, you know, you want to become a deeper friendship and like the stages of revealing your trauma um, is something that I come up against again and again. Um because I'll be triggered by something and I, you know, through therapy and, 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 um, awareness, I try to communicate without anger. Um, but I will be completely overcome, you know, and like struggling with it and, you know, clearly still struggling with whatever it may be the, the moment. And, um, yeah, I guess it's just, it's, I think I have so much fear around that initial moment of dropping the curtain around this. this. Have you, have you done it at all? I have. And, you know, with varying degrees of success, you know, and the, the last person say, you know, I said, you know, I have to, I have to say this moment is really hard for me that you're, you're sharing, you know, this, the the fact that you know you were with this other person and I feel very threatened, mm-hmm. uh, for example, and uh, you know I'm just almost like shaking. But I felt very proud of myself that I was able to, you know, just actually say that I was feeling very vulnerable. But it was still too much. You know, it was still like it still freaked them out so much that they didn't want to, you know, stay involved because it was too scary or whatever it was. Well, uh, so look, uh, I have two things to say. One is that to some extent, it's a pretty good screening tool. I mean, if people can handle it, they're not the right person for you to be with. Um, That's one thing I could say. But the other thing is, are you a bit too ready, too quick to share? And you share more than the other person can handle sometimes. And I would say that, um, do you have anybody, do you have a therapist to talk to, for example? I, I have, and it's happened with therapists too. You know, I think the, the, the myth part, the kind of over the, the sort of achievement part comes easy for me with people at first. So, 
you know, I run marathons and I work a certain kind of job and I present in a certain way and everyone, no matter what kind of pain, even I'll tell the therapist, they, they're congratulatory on all the other things. Then then you know what, then you know with the right therapist, it's that simple. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. You're not, you're not, you know, because you want them to see you. Yeah. You don't want them to see your achievements. You don't want them to see them to see your. I mean, you want them to be be aware of them, but you don't want them to see you through that lens. Mm-hmm. You want them to see you for who you really are, with your real experience, which is of confusion sometimes, and of pain, and of fear. Mm-hmm. And you want them to see that because that's what you're looking for help with. So if they come along congratulatory and trying to make you feel better by giving you great feedback, that's not going to help you. And what they're really telling you is that they're afraid of their own fear and their own or confusion, so they can't handle yours. Mm-hmm. So you're just not with the right people. That's yeah. what I would say to you. Okay. So um, I would, if you want suggestions, I'll, I'll make a suggestion for you. Mm-hmm. Would you like that? Yeah. Okay, there are two forms of therapy that are very compatible with each other, and um, one of them is the one that I teach, compassion and inquiry. Mm-hmm. Believe me, that's not going to happen with a compassion inquiry therapist. You can go online and find somebody in your area or online who's trained in compassion inquiry. Or there's a system called Internal Family Systems, mm-hmm. which is uh, funded by a guy called Dick Schwartz. He's a psychologist. The two systems are very compatible find somebody who does either compassion inquiry or internal family systems, you're not going to have this problem. Okay. Thanks. Okay. Thanks. You're welcome. Thank you. Carrie, thanks so much. Dad, can you do 10 more minutes? Of course I can. Yes. Okay. Okay. So let's go to Jackie. You have, you were, you spoke before, but you have a follow up. So, Go ahead and remember to unmute yourself. Hello. Thank you for having me on again. I, I appreciate it. Um, and let me just say, Salia, you will be up next, okay? So be prepared for that. Salia will, will be the next caller. And we'll try to get as, to as many as we can in the 10 minutes we have left. Well, you know, we, 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 can, take as, we can take 20 minutes around if you want. It's okay. up to you. Okay. okay. All right. Um, Dr. Gabor, in... Um, I guess in continuation with um, my previous question about birth being big, it just kind of, I've been sitting with this for a long time and hearing you talk right now, it just all kind of clicked. Um, I I come from a set of parents that um, living in rural Mexico and being very young and Catholic, um, my mother learning she was pregnant with me, they were forced to marry And I knew I, I, from a very young age knew that I, I wasn't, I wasn't planned. I wasn't wanted. And my parents are still married because they're a Catholic and it would be a sin to get Mm. a divorce. Um, a very unhappy marriage, an abusive situation, controlling, um, my father is a a machista, just a, a macho, very, uh, dominant male force. Um, how and and my birth as well. My my mother. Um, okay, so Jackie, hold on a second. Yes. What are you looking for? Um. 
I guess where where to begin to to the journey of 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 me in the womb, those feelings of unwantedness and the trauma that it was for my mom to even bring me into this world. She came into America illegally through yeah, a but tunnel. Yeah, what, but what, what's lacking for you? What's lacking in your life? I'm not arguing with you. I just want to understand. What's lacking in your life right now that you need to recover? I think it just clicked right now in this conversation. Why? What pulled me to birth and what pulled me to have um, to make my life about bringing um, helping families bring their children into the world in okay. a soft, loving way. I think that's what was lacking for me. Okay, all right, well, good. So here's what's happened, as far as I can tell. In you has lived the pain of your conception and your fetal life in, in, a, in a uterus that didn't want to welcome you. Mm-hmm. And uh, to parents that were not prepared to have you. Uh, and what you've done, or something you has done, is you've taken that pain and you transformed it into a loving energy so that you are doing your best that the same thing would happen to other human beings. That's what I'm hearing. Yes. Now, is that something to be mourned or to be celebrated? I absolutely want to celebrate this. Now. Okay. What's keeping you from celebrating it? I think probably that I have never really truly accepted uh-huh. that I, from conception, <laughs> okay, all right, that, well, I was, that I wasn't wanted. Okay. Can I talk to you about that? Yes. It may be the case that your mother and father were too young, too young and too immature and too unsupported to want you. I get that, okay? Mm-hmm. Was that the reality? Yes. But is it true that you were not wanted? Something wanted you, otherwise you wouldn't be here. You know what wanted you? No. Life wanted you. Oh, God. Otherwise you wouldn't exist. Your parents were not in a state of mind, but they were the agents of life that brought you into this life, into the world. And now you're here bringing others into this world. And this world wants you. And you want you. I, I'm, I'm working on it. <laughs> I, no, I feel no, like no, I put no, on no, a facade. No. Jack, Jackie, you're not working on it. You're doing it. Why do you think you're talking to me? Because you want you. That's why you're talking to me. Yes. Even though it doesn't feel like that sometimes. I I feel like I have a long journey to go in my in a path where I... Well, I understand, and that's, that's only because your mind... I, I don't know where to go back. Okay, well, look. So, here's the thing. Do you get how much you want, how much you want you? Do you get how much you actually want that? 
I have, yes, in these past couple of years where I have decided that this is my, my journey, I, well, there you go. My, my wanting and my love for myself has, exactly. has and, increased. Yeah. And, and, and do you get that you're talking to a total stranger right now in front of 75 strangers? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> do you know how much wanting there is? Yeah, it's it's a it's a need. Yeah. Okay. So um, this idea that you're not wanted, I, I totally get why you, you would experience it that way. But is it reality? Is it your ultimate reality? No, I'm not trying to convince you of anything. I'm just saying there's a different way of looking at it. Now you got work to do. You want to actually experience this more fully and more deeply and, and more consistently. I get that. And that's the journey that you're on. But as I say in the new book, um, we, may, we, may, we may not be as close as we'd like to be, but we're never as far as we think. Mm. So, again, I'm telling you, if you worked with a good therapist trained in compassion inquiry or internal family systems, or if you did some psychedelic work on birth experience, which would be amazing for you, I think. I that is something that I'm very interested in. I I just finished nursing my yeah. my child, and now I can yeah. safely safely go and delve yeah. into this therapy. And I I definitely want to want to try that. Yeah, I um. I'm absolutely convinced that you're getting there. Okay, you really are. You sound like you are, whether you know that or not. Okay. Okay. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate you're welcome. it. Thank you for taking my call again. Of course. Thank you. Dad, let me ask you. We often think that our own problems and views of ourselves are, are unique to us, but just how universal is that experience of is that deep belief of not being wanted? Yeah. Um, from your own work, how universal is that? Yes, and we could talk personally about that, couldn't we? <laughs> yes, we could. Yes, we could. <laughs> Hello. Yeah, yeah. We're here. So, I mean, like my question to you, I just, you know, all right. Okay, no how sorry. often, how often have you come across a similar? Yeah. you know, belief. Um, and, and how often do you have a similar exchange like that? Because Absolutely. It, just, it just strikes me as very universal. Absolutely. Um, okay. Well, Salia, let's bring in the next caller because we want to get to as many as we can before we have to go. So, Salia, you are up next. And just remember... Hi, to, can you go. hear me? Yes, Hey, um, so first off, just want to say, uh, Aaron, I love your reporting. Uh, I actually <laughs> found out about you guys separately and I couldn't. And then I was like, oh, wow, that's his dad. That's crazy. Um, <laughs> and Gabor, uh, I love your work. Really love it. Um, helped me a lot. Um, <laughs> I just want to say I really relate to so many people that called tonight and my heart goes out to everybody. Um, love you all. And um, so my question is that. I have, I come from a lot of similar backgrounds as to a lot of the callers tonight. And I have a friend who's, he's a little further back than I am, I suppose. And he's really stuck in a cycle of addiction. Mm -hmm. um, 
and I want to try to help him out. And I've learned to stop pushing on him so much and more just be there for him. Yeah. Um, but I'm wondering if there's anything I can do. I don't know. I, you know, I just, I want to help him along even further a little bit. And, and he is a little bit resistant. Well, well, a lot resistant to things. He had a therapist and, uh, because of whatever reasons it didn't work out. And, you know, so anyway, I'm just wondering if you have any, any advice in that. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, if you're in a position to read my book on addiction, um, please do. Um, and chapter 33 is exactly about what to do about people in our lives who are addicted. Okay. Now you have three choices. One is you could leave his life. You can say, I'm sorry, this is too painful for me, too difficult for me. Not your fault, but I'm not up for it. Okay. You could do that. Okay. Okay. Or you could say to him, um, you're using for the reasons that you need to use. I'm not here to judge you, control you, change you, uh, push you. I'm just going to be here for you. But I'm not, I'm not going to lift a finger to try and change you because I can't. So I just want to love you and be with you and, and support you. And, and um, But I'm not going to try and change you in any way at all. Either of those first two um, approaches that I'm sorry is too painful for me. I can't bear it. And I'm not making you wrong for that. I understand you're not doing this to me, but for me, it's too difficult. I'm not up for it. That's legitimate to say that. It's also legitimate to say you're a separate person from me. You have the right to make your own choices. Whether I agree with your choices or not, it's your life. It's not mine. I'm not going to try and change you. I'm just going to be here. That's totally legitimate as well. What is crazy making is I'm going to be in your life and I'm going to keep trying to change you and change your behavior. Because as soon as you do that, you're exerting pressure. And as soon as you exert pressure, he's going to push back. And the more you push, the more pushback you're going to get. I'm sorry, Aaron. I'm talking about the name of your program, Pushback. That's not, that's not what I meant. <laughs> That's not what I meant here. I, I appreciate meant- the plug, Dad. I appreciate it. Thank you for that. <laughs> what I meant here, what I meant here, is the automatic resistance to any sense of being pushed. And it's crazy because that's so. Tr- that's that's exactly what happens. Yeah. <laughs> of course it does, but naturally is what happens. If I was, if I if I was physically with you, and I wanted you to go north because I knew it was good for you to go north, and I was physically pushing you to go north, what would you do? <laughs> well, I'm a little different, but because whatever. But yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. <laughs> you would immediately resist. So the degree of resistance that you get is completely proportionate to the degree of pushing that you're doing. So then my question for you is, can you be in this person's life without pushing? That's my own. That's my own issue that I have to work on. That is your own issue. It's got nothing to do with that. That's your own issue that you got to work on. And I would say, the question I would ask you this, is this the first time in your life that you saw people do harmful things and you wished you could change them so that you could feel better? No, like, obvi- yeah, I mean, it goes back, I, I try to fix my parents. So, yeah. Exactly. So it's still trying to do what you couldn't do then. 
and you can't do it now either, okay? Okay. Got it? Got it. Thank you. I appreciate I appreciate this. It's helping. Thank you. Thank you. Rena, you are up and remember to unmute yourself by hitting the microphone button in the bottom right. Uh, hi, Aaron. Hi, Dr. Gabor. Hi. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, of both of you. I could listen to each of you for hours. Um, I believe uh, we all, like the most interesting people are the ones that have kind of been through pain. Um, but um, my, my question is just about relationships. And it's just a general question. I, I want your opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, if someone is is broken emotionally, spiritually, mentally, is it? Do you think it's best to wait to start a new relationship and put yourself back together again, or is it better to just? Is it okay to start a new relationship, but with a chance of bringing like old traumas and uh, into the new relationship? Well, <clears throat> here's the thing. Um, you're never going to, until you're completely healed, which, believe me, if I'm an example, it's a lifelong process. You're never going to not bring trauma into any relationship. You're just not going to do it. But the more healed you become, the more you work on yourself, the less trauma you're going to begin to a relationship. Are you with me so far? Uh, yes. Okay. Now, the less trauma you bring to, into a relationship, the more likely then you, you are to meet somebody who's also bringing less trauma. Because here's how relationships work. We always bring exactly as much trauma into the relationship as our partner. So people always find somebody precisely at their own level of trauma. So it's not a question of, do I wait till I'm totally healed before I get into a relationship? Because you know what? that's going to take a long time. Number one. Number two, relationships can be the venue where you heal trauma for both of yourselves if you do so consciously. So the question is not whether I bring trauma into a relationship, but whether I bring consciousness into a relationship, consciousness of the trauma. So you don't wait. First of all, use the word broken again. I don't use that word. I don't think anybody's broken as such. But, yeah, we carry wounds. And uh, if you do a bit of work so that your wound is a bit more healed, you're going to attract somebody whose wound is also more healed than in the previous relationship. And ideally, in a working relationship, you can both be open and vulnerable and bring your wounds, and you can help each other heal. Now, there's a wonderful book I'm going to recommend for you. Um, it's called Getting the Love You Want by Harville Hendricks, H-E-N-D-R-I-X, or is it, I think it's D-I-X, yeah. The book is called Getting the Love You Want. It's all about how we get into relationship. It's always with somebody who reflects our own level of um, woundedness, if you like, and how to work on that together. Does that answer your question? Uh, it helps. It helps a lot. <laughs> I appreciate your opinion. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Brooke, you are up, and you might be the last caller because we're really we're running over time. So I will bring you in, and remember to unmute yourself. 
And by the way, Aaron, what I can say to you is that we can do this again sometime. You know? Well, yes, that's what I was hoping you would say. And so that's yeah. great. So for anyone who didn't get a chance to speak today, we'll be doing this again. And uh, you'll have another chance. Okay, Brooke, go ahead. Hi, Aaron and Dr. Gabor. I'd like to thank you both for providing this space. Um, so I've gone through many uh, treatment programs and therapy modalities myself, and I'd consider myself on the other side of that deeper level of healing. And through that, I found that those who helped facilitate my own healing the most effectively were those who had to overcome their own past trauma. Exactly. So I guess my own question to you, Dr. Gabor, is do you believe that people in the field of psych with personal experience have a greater potential to facilitate healing in others? Oh, here's the problem that, for example, people go into psychiatry, but they never work on their own healing. They never work on their own healing. That's not required as part of the psychiatric training. And unless you've done your own work, you're very limited in your capacity to help others. And so when I train people in compassion inquiry, they spend the first three months working on themselves and they continue to work on themselves throughout the process. So that self-work on the part of the helper, the therapist, the physician, the psychiatrist, the counselor, the psychologist, whoever they are, the nurse, is so essential. And uh, until we do that, we're kind of blind and we're trying to fix other people where it's not our job to fix other people. Our job is to help people heal, to find that healing power within. Now, how am I going to help you find the healing power within yourself if I haven't found it in myself? Absolutely. Absolutely. So people, like, given that they have done that work themselves and, and you know, reach the other side of that, do you feel like there is... Uh, I'd say a deeper ability to connect more authentically with their patients, clients, etc. Once having done that healing work themselves. Well, um, that's my own experience. That's the universal experience. And uh, again, without wanting to advertise myself, but this compassion inquiry course that I teach the therapists and so on, that's what they say when they come out at the other side and say, "Boy, oh boy!" All of a sudden, I'm connecting so much deeper with my clients than I used to. Why? For the reasons that you yourself uh, explained. Thank you very much. It's been very helpful. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Brooke. And as a bonus caller, we have to round out the show. Katie Halper is here. Katie, you have just released a brand new interview with Gabor. So maybe you can tell us how people can see that if they want to watch it. Katie, you there? Okay, don't doesn't look like Katie's still on the call, but uh, if you want to see the interview between Gabor and Katie, she's just released it at the Katie Helper Show, which you can find on YouTube. And uh, we'll we'll wrap it there. Dad, thank you so much for doing this. Whenever I get the chance to hear you work with other people. I always learn something about myself and um, so mm. I really, really appreciate you doing this. So thank you so much. And this, I hope people enjoyed this and I, I hope we can do it again because this was great. Thank you. I enjoyed it as well. And I'll be very happy to work with you again. Thank you, Aaron. Great. I'll come up and share and talk to you now. Okay. <laughs> and uh, everybody else, thank you so much for tuning in. This was awesome. And I'll be back with another call in this weekend and I will announce that as soon as I schedule it. Hope you have a great, rest of your day and hope you have a good weekend. Bye.